0: In the 1980s, Perry Ellis was a respected young American label when fledgling designer Marc Jacobs was hired.
1: So here I was, the head of women's design at Perry Ellis at 25 years old. At that point, what had become of Perry Ellis was this very kind of wear-to-work, sort of smart, like, career clothes. You know, they were clothes that mature women, I think, could wear to work, et cetera, et cetera. So I remember my first season, I wanted to bring back this sort of spirit of Perry Ellis, not what it had become, but where it started, when Perry started his company, I mean, there were raw rah skirts and heavy McNutt tweeds. I mean, it was very whimsical. It was very young. You know, it was much more demonstrative and much more about like strong silhouette. And it was fashion. And so when I joined Perry Ellis, I wanted to bring, you know, this kind of youthful attitude of that same sensibility. So I looked to like kind of Woodstock and I looked at sort of these, I mean, I looked to Jasper Johns and his interpretation of the American flag and Bucket Hats and Duchess Satin and Anna Winter Bob wigs.
0: He sent clever collections down the Perielis runway that moved and pivoted with the seasons. Spotted or striped sweaters reinterpreted in sequins and worn with perky shorts, Nancy Reagan-esque suit little cardigan jackets made from chintz florals or pastel color blocks narrow Jacqueline Kennedy-style floor-length evening dresses worn under see-through plastic raincoats cat-in-the-hat top hats and swaggering 70s glam rock velvet frock coats and flared pants with boots
1: But the powers that be at Perielis were like thinking like Oh no, this is too much of a departure from where we were. And and I thought, like, okay, well, I can give them uptown. I can go from your downtown, like sort of rebellious kid, to having, you know, lunch at Mortimer's with Ann Slater, like, no problem. <laughs> and then what happened was I just thought, that's just not me. It's like that was a fun little pose. But what I was really feeling was the rock and roll circus, and I had to get back to sort of doing something that I believed in and what I believed Perry Ellis would have been doing if you were a young person. So I kind of returned to the club scene and my friends who were young and making music and art and left the ladies of Park Avenue behind.
2: Welcome to In Vogue the 1990s, a podcast about a pivotal time that ushered in a new era in fashion and in culture. Join us as we examine the defining moments of the decade that shape fashion as we know it today. We'll hear from fashion leaders, cultural icons, and Vogue's own editorial
0: team. I'm Anna Winter, And I'm your host, Hamish Bowles. It was the fall of 1992 and I was in the audience of Marc Jacobs' 1993 spring summer collection for Perry Ellis. It was the classic show setup: up. The room is full of, you know, retailers who are looking for their little ladies who lunch dresses and the fashion stars of the American and international press. Everyone is looking fairly groomed because that's how you looked when you went to a fashion show. And it's usually what you were looking at on the runway. And then the first girl comes out and she looks a little bit bedraggled, like she's just tumbled out of bed.
1: There was like a... Dirty, grubby glamour to the whole thing and you know, lipstick, but not well applied.
0: All these girls who you're used to seeing. Kate and Kristen McNenemy and very Linda, kind of made up and groomed and uh, Naomi Campbell. You know, it's these same girls and they've been stripped of their makeup and there's no Elnet hairspray.
1: And that felt such the antithesis to everything that came before it.
0: Very beautiful in a scrubbed down, undone, unmade bed kind of way slips that
1: were beaded, little shrunken cardigans, and just barrettes sort of loosely thrown into their hair, and Doc
0: Martens. Looked like you kind of raided a thrift store and maybe a boyfriend's closet, and you'd sort of put it all together in this kind of haphazard way. You know, it was one of those very, very powerful fashion shows. And, you know, by the end of the show, it's just crescendoed, it's just one girl after another, and it's just relentless. I mean, I was completely appalled. I couldn't believe what was coming down the runway. What you're getting is pure Courtney Love grunge, and it's just relentlessly coming at you. And two very, very thoughtful fashion critics, Susie Menkes of the International Herald Tribune, Kathy Horn of the Washington Post, both wrote eviscerating reviews. This is Kathy Horn. All right, let's see if I can do this.
3: Call it boho, grunge or deja vu all over again, but the new look for spring is chaotic, contrived and so encumbered with cultural significance that even the most astute follower of fashion will find herself wondering if she's supposed to look like Courtney Love, rarely has slovenliness looked so self-conscious or commanded so high a price.
0: The esteemed fashion critic Susie Menkes also wrote an eviscerating review. And went a step further.
1: Susie even went to the extent; I think she had these badges made that said "Grunge is ghastly" I remember and distributed them.
0: them. <laughs> I know that our Vogue editors were completely divided. It's what you know, great fashion does. It's what great fashion designers do. You know, they hold a mirror up to the times, and sometimes, you know, it's a crazy fairground mirror, and you don't recognize yourself in it but it's a very interesting perspective. You know, the horror is turning to, actually, this is something very relevant and cool. How
4: does this na
0: This is Nicole Phelps, director of Vogue Runway, who was a college student in the early 90s
4: the grungy crunchy riffs of smells like teen spirit even now when i hear it 30 years later it it like gets me in like in my gut in my solar plexus I get like sensations or tingles. It really did sound like something new and something different. Grunge was a movement that originated among young people. They weren't part of the elite ruling class. They weren't necessarily prep school kids. It was, you know, public school
5: kids. These are the kids of parents who were baby boomers and kind of got the best of the 1980s.
0: Kimberly Jenkins is a noted fashion historian.
5: These kids who were interested in grunge were their children, many of them, and they're just thinking, "This is very underwhelming. This is not at all what I aspire to." You know, wake up, people! This is kind of the sentiment behind grunge, and we hear that in the music, the lyrics.
6: I'm so lonely. That's okay.
5: Just disgruntled, really, with society. You have the band Nirvana becoming really the most popular for conveying that.
0: And as Nirvana exploded onto the music scene, the message of grunge was clear. Come as you are. And so they did.
7: Grunge is the fashion trend launched by the hard-driving guitar music known as the Seattle Sound. The grunge look is an urban lumberjack, anything-goes ensemble of duck boots, tattered shirts and long underwear. Yeah, you know, it was funny. So working at the front desk at Sub Pop, a lot of times people would call and they would say to me, God, you have the best job in the world. Or they'd ask what it was like working at the heart of everything that was happening.
0: Megan Jasper, current CEO of Sub Pop Records, Nirvana's first record label, was the Sub Pop receptionist in the early 90s.
7: I knew I was around a really creative bunch of people, the musicians, my coworkers, um, they were such incredible resources. They were so interesting to be around and to talk to. And I knew in that sense that I was someplace really, really special. The musicians that started this movement or wore
2: this look that was picked up, they were living hand to mouth.
0: Laird Borelli-Person, Vogue's archive editor.
2: And it was Seattle, it was cold. You know, you needed a layered look, you needed to be warm, and you didn't have a lot of money, so where did you shop? You shopped secondhand, which, you know, a fancier name
0: for is vintage. Kim Jenkins, fashion historian.
5: There's this appeal to kind of countering how we typically shop, engaging in capitalism and consumerism and going to all these department stores or big name shops and and instead going to secondhand stores which is better for the environment and it's cheap and it's just easier
7: seattle's goodwill store was far ahead of the fashion curve when it came to grungy clothing now it's the place to go for acceptable grungy jeans grunge felt so different it was way more effortless and kind of like truly gritty. I do actually remember kind of just picking clothes up off the floor of my bedroom and putting them on. It really did feel like um, it didn't matter so much what you wore. It was more about whether it just was working for you and what you needed to do. I think that there was a more practical approach to how, how people dressed and looked.
0: By 1993, national attention had focused on the Pacific Northwest. The laid-back Seattle vibe became a source of international fascination, and its signature style, soon known as the grunge look, brought mass appeal to the shabby, vintage, unpolished aesthetic, with Kurt Cobain and his partner Courtney Love as its poster children.
2: Let's get two shots. It's called
4: visual I get when I think of grunge is Courtney Love with her peroxided hair with like a month's worth of roots, unbrushed bed-heady hair, a silk slip in nude or, or blush pink with a black bra underneath it. That was another thing that was a really big deal, the idea of exposed bra straps in the early 90s. It was a new thing. You might have torn fishnets or you might have bare legs and you'd have scuffed up combat boots and the guy would be wearing an unbuttoned flannel that had been through the wash a hundred times, a T-shirt that had lost its shape, and a pair of loose-fitting jeans, or in Kurt Cobain's case, you know, granny dresses. Like, unshowered. Unshowered, but still sexy. I remember Mark Arm
6: from Mudhoney saying to me once, like, why don't you wear T-shirts anymore (laughs) on stage? (laughs) And then I thought, Okay, I'm going to wear a t-shirt. So I wore like an extra large t-shirt with a choker and boots, you know, and (laughs) and that was it.
0: This is Kim Gordon, one of the founders of indie rock band Sonic Youth that started in New York.
6: We played in Seattle a lot, and we played with bands like Mudhoney a lot on tour. And I remember Bruce, we were friends with Bruce from Sub Pop. And I remember the first time Nirvana played in New York. And Bruce was like, you're gonna love this band. I mean, people in in Seattle love him. You know, he walks out in the audience, they just, it's like Jesus or something, (laughs) you know? You know, grunge, I mean, just wearing t-shirts and jeans is also fashion. (laughs) You know, you can't escape it. Of course, Seattle bands hated the word and, but I I think in the fashion world, what it meant was kind of more of just an anti-fashion
0: statement. And this desire to rebel had now permeated the fashion world.
3: It really wasn't about designer clothes. Uh, It was not about money, it was about what you could make. It was, you know, it was a a consciousness.
0: Camilla Nickerson is a Vogue contributing editor.
3: You know, where America was making the music of that moment and sort of spread the word. And um, England was creating a visual and you had these young photographers in England who were photographing their girlfriends or girl down the street who wasn't a supermodel, dressing them in clothes they found in thrift stores, photographing them in their bedsits, creating the visuals that sort of summoned that spirit. And
5: so suddenly you had this girl, Kate Moss, She disrupted what was typical of the supermodel. She didn't have, quote-unquote, the right height. She didn't have, quote-unquote, the right proportions.
0: But Kate had also this kind of sense of otherworldliness, slightly more delicate, slightly more real, slightly less perfect, slightly more uh, awkward. The fashion world was taken with this new, refreshing, and fragile look that she personified.
8: And she was kind of the embodiment of how you can understand Grunge with beauty.
0: Tony Goodman, Vogue's sustainability editor.
8: She could do grunge perfectly, she could do couture perfectly, so her reign in this transition was apparent. She could do it, she could just do it.
0: Despite her height and waifish figure, or perhaps because of them, Kate's rise as a supermodel signaled a new trend in fashion one of authenticity, vulnerability, and almost haunting realism. It was a shift that aligned perfectly with the new alternative perspective. It's ironic when you think about it, because this new alternative style was antithetical to the tenets of fashion, sloppy, thoughtless, and just generally apathetic. But it has sparked a debate within the fashion industry. Could a rejection of fashion become high fashion? And that brings us back here to 1992, when Mark Jacobs showed his grunge collection for Perry Ellis.
3: I can remember where I was sitting, actually.
0: Kathy Horn again, a fashion critic with the Washington Post at the time, and currently fashion critic at large for the cut.
3: And most everybody was shocked by what they saw. Plenty of us knew about grunge, but to see the... The models, you know, Naomi and Christy, you know, coming out in clothes that really looked like thrift shop. In those grungy colors and the plaids and the kind of general sloppiness of it. Because it was not something we had seen from Mark,
0: um, really, at Perielis at that point. You know, we had one fabulous, legendary (laughs) editor who I do remember just said, "Oh." Horrified, absolutely horrified, and then some of the cooler, younger editors said that was so amazing. And of course, she did a hundred and eighty pivot and said, "Wasn't that, the, wasn't that the next best thing?" You know, that dichotomy of reactions was was perfectly exemplified by the fact that Mark was fired from Perry Ellis, and then he got Designer of the Year award.
4: There were parts of the establishment who never embraced it. Nicole Phelps again. But certainly the fashion establishment saw it for what it was, this, you know, very cool new sound coming out of Seattle and, and this, you know, the deconstruction of the look and the rejection of propriety. And it looked cool and new and, you know, fashion sort of latched on re- really quickly.
0: Anna Swee. Then an emerging designer who was just breaking into the fashion industry noticed this change in the highest echelons of the fashion community.
9: I remember going to a party and suddenly all the models weren't wearing head-to-toe designer. They were wearing a pair of jeans and maybe a vintage top.
0: Anna Sui's designs might have previously been considered fringe, but grunge brought a new acceptance to more alternative designs like hers.
9: There was a whole different thing going on. And I thought, you know, maybe this, this is the time for me.
0: While in Paris with her friend, the legendary fashion photographer Stephen Meisel, Anna remember stopping at the Ritz to pick up Madonna.
9: And when she came out, she had her coat on and we, had, we were late, so we rushed into the car, rushed into the venue, sat down and she took off her coat and she said, Anna, I have a surprise for you. And she was wearing my dress. And this was the baby doll dress that kind of brought attention to my collection.
0: Anna soon became known for her somewhat feminine take on the grunge aesthetic, and in particular for this baby doll dress that remained one of her most iconic pieces. Inspired by Kurt Cobain's choice to sometimes wear a dress, Anna designed baby doll dresses for women and men to be worn with work boots, just as Kurt had styled his, putting his gender-bending look on the runway. And she elevated the concept of second-hand clothes too, spending weekends combing through flea markets with supermodel Naomi Campbell and turning their discoveries into runway fashion.
9: We bought belts from the army surplus store, but then we embellished them with flowers. We did some crochet hats, Where it wasn't so slick. and It wasn't so manufactured. It was more artisanal.
0: After months of appearing on the runways and being photographed on models around town, the grunge look overcame whatever misgivings the high fashion world might have had. Grace Coddington, legendary Vogue editor, styled a now iconic grunge shoot, photographed by Stephen Mizell.
7: Hey, Run Through listeners, are you curious about what goes on behind the scenes at Vogue and in the world of fashion? Join Vogue Club, a -a one-of-a-kind fashion community where you can unlock exclusive access to Vogue editors, industry players, and fellow members, as well as receive expert style advice, tickets to VIP events, handpicked gifts, and so much more. Visit VogueClub.com today and get 20% off using promo code THERUNTHROUGH20. That's VogueClub.com, promo code THERUNTHROUGH20. So I had suggested
8: to do this shoot with all these vintage things and then, you know, take them out into the countryside and put big boots on them and, and dress them down and take all that makeup off and things. I was speaking the same language as, as Mizell, but he was speaking it from the point of view of grunge because he's very tapped into every new thing.
0: The models, Naomi Campbell, Krista McNemony and Naja Almond, to name a few, were wearing a kind of collage of clothes. Stephen
8: Mizell, he said, oh you should go and take some things from Anna because they're very vintagey looking and things, so I did.
0: The spread was something we'd really never seen in the pages of Vogue before. Krista McNamony with her very short, severely cut black hair, partly covered by a knitted purple beanie lays in a field in a black shirt bearing the word Nirvana in blazing blue letters under a black and white oversized flannel shirt. If she's wearing any makeup, it's barely discernible, except for a little touch of red at the lip. In one photo, Nadia Alman, wearing a loosely fitted button-up shirt, stares directly into the camera, almost forcing you, daring you to look at the nose ring and her bare, freckled face, while Naomi Campbell sits, deliberately gawky and not kneed, in a dull-colored red and black striped sweater that doesn't really go in the conventional sense, with the teal-blue-green hat on her head, or with the plaid flannel that covers her legs, or the sturdy, partly untied boots. It was completely shocking and entirely new terrain for the magazine, and for its relatively new, editor-in-chief Anna Winter. I don't
8: know if Anna was completely tuned into this new look, I think she probably hated it. But, you know, she was amazing in that she let it happen uh, because she trusted me that, that it was relevant. And it's funny because here we are talking about it now. <laughs> you
0: know, Now that grunge was in the pages of Vogue, Now that it was something that could be purchased and styled, it became commodified and commercialized, something that the originators of grunge never sought and, in fact, actively rejected. And while you could still find flannel shirts in the Salvation Army, you could also buy designer versions, which may cost less than couture, but were still high fashion designer prices.
7: When grunge hit the runways, first off, it seemed bizarre that people were willing to pay that kind of money for something that anyone else here would have spent like $5 for at a thrift store. I remember thinking like, you kind of have to hate your money to buy that.
0: Megan Jasper again, CEO of Sub Pop Records. It's
7: actually a really interesting thing because it means that this culture is speaking to a lot of people and it means that things are probably opening up. But also when you're in your early 20s, you don't want to fucking share that shit. Like, you kind of want to own it for yourself. I wasn't ready to share all of it then. But, I mean, what do you do? It's not like it's something to fight against because it's happening.
0: Part of what had been so shocking about the Vogue shoot was that these supermodels were wearing the type of clothes that were much more attainable for a broader audience of people. Suddenly, outfits that would have never been considered fashion had essentially a stamp of approval from vogue challenging the idea of what fashion could be and it became such a topic of debate that it even made the news my wife and i were
1: sitting around at a sunday looking at a magazine saying where did this stuff come from and do they really expect people to dress in this stuff
0: a movement that had been about accessibility and affordability and practicality about anti-capitalism and rebellion somehow had morphed into something very different it became yet another tool to sell clothes. Laird Borelli-Person, Vogue's archive editor. The
2: idea of rebellion, the idea of vintage, that DIY aspect is inviting to young people that are interested in fashion but don't have a big budget to spend on fashion. The idea that you can pick up a a sweater with a, a hole in it and make it look kind of dangerously glamorous like Kurt Cobain is, you know, an attractive and not scary one. It became, I think, a symbol of rebellion and youth and independence. These are very, very seductive ideas that work really well with marketing.
0: Once grunge penetrated high fashion and then went mainstream, it proved that any style, even the most anti-fashion look, could upset the most established rules of fashion and become fashion.
2: For a long time, the idea of fashion dictatorship and rules about what was right and what was wrong, fashion rules in general, grunge didn't have time for that. And that was refreshing. Grunge said, you can be yourself how you want to be yourself. People want their voices to be heard, and fashion is one way that they do it.
0: Recently, Kathy Horne, fashion critic at large for The Cut, re-evaluated her 1992 review of Marc Jacobs' Perry Ellis show.
3: Why were those of us in attendance such a miserable chorus of condemners? Why did so many critics allow no room on the American runways for a look that was legitimately an expression of impertinent new values about alternative beauty, unaffected glamour, anti-luxury? You know, when a designer does something that is so left field, you can fault it for the things like, oh, maybe it's a little bit exploitive of a music trend. Maybe it's a little slapdash, but also maybe it indicates that the designer is just desperate to break out. Maybe he's just trying to find his voice. You know, I could see Mark's desire to say, hey, here I am on 7th Avenue, right opposite the 550 building, which is where all the the prestigious designers were, to say something that is more street-oriented, that's more youth-oriented, that's more shocking.
0: I think that's just responding to the world around you. And grunge has never really left the fashion stratosphere. In recent seasons, both Marc Jacobs and Anna Sui reissued those iconic collections. And when you look at the clothes now, they don't seem radical, they don't seem like a massive departure. In fact, they seem quite normal and cool and comfortable because they established an eclectic, vintage-driven way of dressing that has continued to shape the 21st-century fashion landscape.
3: I was sort of surprised that we were so severe and prissy about Mark's grunge collection, because in its elements, it all made sense. And also, it was an American thing. We should have already been prepared for something like that.
0: In many ways, this is a story about how a niche, anti-fashion look disrupted the fashion industry. But it's also a story about the realization that any style, anywhere of dressing, any type of clothing could be determined fashion. And for every single one of us who wake up and put something on our backs every day, whether we're in Seattle or downtown Seoul, this act of dressing is a way of fashioning ourselves, a way of expressing ourselves. And no one is exempt from that. In Vogue, the 1990s, is presented by Anna Winter and produced by Jasmine Aguilera, Julia Doyle, Kinsey Clark, and Tarka Zen. Our executive producer is Alex Kappelman, mixed by Rainhouse. Mark Guiducci is Vogue's creative editorial director, and Vogue's editorial team is led by Borelli Parson, Mark Holgate, Nicole Phelps, and myself, Hamish Bowles. Special thanks to digital director Annalisa Yabsley. Vice President of Audio Julie Shen and Anna Winter. Please do subscribe to the podcast. It helps new listeners find the show. You can find additional information, incredible imagery, and episode references in the show notes or at Vogue.com slash podcast. I'm your host, Hamish Bowles.